Exploring the intersection of liberty and character. Welcome to the Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed. Here we are back on the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode. This is Lawrence Reed, your host from the Foundation for Economic Education. And once again, I'm very proud to have a program on the Loving Liberty Network. In this first segment, my producer, Brian Hyde, and I traditionally discuss a hero uh, that I've chosen for our discussion of the week. And uh, this one is uh, a woman from a time that produced very few heroes. Hey, Brian, good to have you on. Thanks so much. So, yeah, I, I'm i surprised that because we're looking at the time period of the French Revolution. And I'm going to ask you, for the sake of myself and for the sake of the audience, to, to tell us the name of this hero so that it's pronounced correctly, at least by one of us. Okay. Her first name was Olympe, O-L-Y-M-P-E. And her, uh, the rest of her name is de Gouge, D-E, and then final word, G-O-U-G-E-S, Olympe de Gouge. And she was one of the few heroes, even fewer heroines, of the French Revolution of the 1790s. Okay, so tell us a little bit about her and, and the circumstances that, that made her a heroic figure. I'd be happy to. Of course, you have to understand the backdrop of uh, 1790s France. Uh, the revolution had begun in 1789 against King Louis uh, XVI and his very aristocratic regime. He was trying to uh, implement some reforms uh, to uh, go partway toward the demands of some of the early revolutionaries. But the aristocracy dragged its feet, and ultimately the people rose up, uh, stormed the Bastille in the summer of 1789, and the revolution, which lasted <clears throat> the better part of a decade, was then underway. Olympe de Gouges had already made a name for herself around the country. Uh, she was not very old, even before the age of 30, uh, which she uh, arrived at uh, about the time of the start of the revolution. She was already famous as a playwright, as an outspoken defender of the rights of women in a place and at a, <clears throat> at a time excuse me, when women's rights were not recognized. And she was also known for being very outspoken <clears throat> against the institution of slavery, which was very common in the world at that time. How were women regarded in that time? Uh, very poorly. Uh, before the French Revolution, which really did not do very much for them, um, but before it was perhaps in many ways even worse, uh, women could not marry the man of their choice until at least age 22. So they were often forcibly married off in their teen years, to, uh, to whoever the uh, family ordered them to marry. That was the case of um, Olympe de Gouges, as a matter of fact. Uh, they had uh, uh, no rights, politically speaking. They were regarded as uh, uh, you know, people who should just sort of stay home and do the chores and let the men do all the work, especially when it came to politics. So they weren't uh, really even yet to the class of second-class uh, citizens. They, they were uh, very poorly treated. The revolution itself, as I say, did not do much for them. In fact, one historian, one of my favorites of this period, Stephen Clark, says that uh, the following are the few advances that the revolution won for women. One was that uh, daughters were finally able to inherit as much as their brothers. They were finally allowed to get divorced. 
and um, uh, as long as they were over 21, uh, they could finally marry whoever they wanted without parental consent. Uh, and females were given permission to sign legal documents as witnesses. Uh, but those are minor reforms. Otherwise, they were uh, uh, way behind the pack in the uh, pecking order of French society. Now, I know you recently wrote an article on fee.org about Olympe de Gouges. And you mentioned that she knew firsthand what oppression against women was like. What did you mean by that? Well, she grew up in this society where women were so poorly treated and regarded as, at best, uh, you know, distant uh, class citizens uh, to, to men. Uh, I have a quote from her uh, that she wrote uh, when she was looking back on the time when she was forced to marry at the age of 16. And here's what she said of the man she was forced to marry. She said, I was married to a man I did not love and who was neither rich nor well-born. I was sacrificed for no reason that could make up for the repugnance that I felt for this man. (laughs) Well, uh, to her delight, uh, he didn't last a year, not because they got divorced, but rather because he died under rather unusual circumstances. (laughs) She uh, never showed any remorse over uh, what had happened to him. Uh, I I don't think that she uh, was involved directly in his untimely demise, but she showed no remorse and she never remarried. Now, I understand the French Revolution had its bloodthirsty radicals. In fact, that's usually what comes to mind when we talk about the French Revolution. There were moderates as well. Where exactly did she fall on that spectrum? Well, she was very much a revolutionary in that she was against the old regime. She uh, was against the uh, absolute monarchy, but she was not the bloodthirsty or vengeance-seeking, power-hungry type that would take over uh, early in the revolution, especially by 1793. Uh, She was regarded as rather moderate in her politics. She was in favor of a constitutional monarchy such as what uh, Britain had and would continue to evolve under uh, for the next uh, century or so. Uh, She did make the statement once, women, isn't it time that we too held a revolution? But she didn't by that uh, mean the kind of uh, bloody uh, guillotine-soaked revolution that the French ended up getting. She was um, a relative moderate. Were there any beliefs of hers that stand out to you or that you admire? Yeah, uh, she was against uh, both customs and laws that advantaged uh, some people, regardless of sex, at the expense of others. She believed that every individual was entitled to the upward mobility that their character or their abilities or their ambitions would naturally give them uh, if they were unobstructed. Uh, She was an early opponent of the slave trade. Um, And she was quite the accomplished uh, uh, advocate for freedoms of speech, assembly, and press. Uh, So I admire her for uh, just about everything. I can't think of anything she did stand for that I would personally have a problem with. Uh, She was, uh, and and she spoke out repeatedly against the violence of the French Revolution, which is what ultimately would come uh, for her. So she did get in trouble then with with the folks leading that revolution? That's right. The leading uh, revolutionaries of the mid-1790s, like Maximilien Robespierre and Jean-Paul Marat, they uh, did not like the fact that this upstart woman was raising questions about the bloody direction they were taking the revolution. And uh, she was imprisoned uh, for three months with no access to legal counsel. Uh, She was subsequently tried ever so quickly 
tried for treason, no less, and all she had done was to speak out against uh, the violent turn of the revolution. And within a day of her trial, she was guillotined, and that wow. was on the, the 2nd of November, 1793. Well, I was thinking they didn't mess around, but there's, there's proof they really didn't mess around. That's right. She was only the second woman, in fact, uh, in revolutionary France after Marie Antoinette, the queen, uh, to lose her head to a basket. So how is she remembered today by the French people? Is hers a name that, that they would be familiar with? Uh, yes, of course, opinion today is divided in, even in France on the French Revolution itself. But whether you are friendly to the revolution or have problems with it, uh, you tend to uh, be someone who would admire Olympe de Gouge because she uh, she was a revolutionary, but within reason uh, and uh, did not support the terrible violence that it uh, degenerated into. So she's generally regarded today as a hero, maybe one of the very few heroes that the revolution produced. We've got about a minute here before we go to break. But, Larry, I, I want to ask your opinion, and that is, what can we take away? Are there any take-home lessons from the French Revolution that uh, that we would be wise in our time to remember? Yes. Uh, the contrast between the French Revolution and the American Revolution, of course, is huge. They both started out with the best of intentions, but it was the American Revolution that kept it on, kept those intentions on the proper track and produced a genuine uh, republic and a limitation on government. The French Revolution, however, got out of hand because radicals took it over too many people allowed their sense of envy uh, to get uh, control of them, and they went on a killing spree uh, that sooner or later, of course, uh, would have to be resolved in some kind of um, resurgence of all-powerful government. And that's what happened. They, by the end of the decade, after all that violence, they got Napoleon Bonaparte. And how did that work out for them? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, not very well. I mean, he, within a few years, he declared himself emperor. So, you know, they went full circle. They got rid of a monarchy only to see another one uh, implemented. And after Napoleon, of course, they got a restoration of the old Bourbon monarchy uh, that Louis XVI was a member of. Okay. Olympe de Gouges. There's a name that I'm going to have to file away for future reference. Maybe the next time I'm on Jeopardy. Hey, great. Okay. Well, people can read the article I wrote about her at fee.org in more detail than we've had time to discuss today. Welcome back to the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is Lawrence Reed, your host from the Foundation for Economic Education. I have as a guest with me for the balance of the hour a good friend who is also a colleague at FEE. He's been one of the star additions to our staff and joined it, I think, about a year ago. Is that right, John? Yeah, it'll be a year in August. Fantastic. Well, you've been fantastic uh, every day, and uh, the things that you write for the website fee.org have been among the most popular articles of the past year. Let me say uh, a little bit about John, and then we'll commence our discussion about one of his recent articles. John Miltimore is the managing editor of fee.org, F-E-E.org. 
His writing and reporting have appeared in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Forbes, Fox News, The Washington Times, and other places. And today, I want John to talk uh, with us about his recent article on fee.org entitled, 44 Things You Should Know About the Green New Deal. 44 Things You Should Know About the Green New Deal. Welcome to the Read Hour, John. Hey, thanks for having me, Larry. It's really fun to be here with you. Thanks for being with us. Before we talk about your article, uh, how about reminding our listeners of just what the Green New Deal is? It was in the news big time just a few months ago. It's receded a bit now. Tell us what it is and what it aims to accomplish. Yeah, um, I'm sure all your listeners have heard about it already, but um, the Green New Deal is basically a congressional resolution um, that is designed to tackle you know, what uh, many progressives see as the two biggest problems in America today, um, in, in, inequality and uh, climate change. And it, it does that by um, you know, leveraging the, the federal government to do some things, um, j just to, to create like a, a large framework to tackle these problems. And of course, it harkens back to you know, FDR's New Deal, um, which sort of set the precedent for that. And it was really put out there by uh, uh, New York Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, correct? Yes, I, I, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, it was put out by uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez and Senator uh, Ed Markey from Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, as I recall, when it came out earlier this year, one of the initial controversies was some provision that uh, said that uh, government should guarantee an income for everybody, uh, whether they work or not. Did they, <laughs> Am I right about that? And did that get revised? That did. I think they pulled that out, actually. That seemed to be a, um, something that I think she blamed an intern for that mistake, that they, they actually didn't intend that to be in there. Um, and they, they did strip out that provision, at least, when it was um, officially released later that week. <laughs> Maybe we just caught them red-handed, huh? Exactly. <laughs> I, think, I think they did get a little backlash from that really, really quickly. Now, there's a ton of stuff in this uh, Green New Deal. As you point out, it deals with diverse topics uh, from economic inequality to uh, climate change and, and lots of stuff in between, I guess. The price tag for it uh, is estimated at something like $93 trillion over the first 10 years. I'm wondering, I mean, consider the size of the federal budget uh, today. In one year, it's what uh, six trillion thereabouts, five and a half trillion in that neighborhood. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a little under six trillion, I believe. Um, and even that that ninety three trillion dollar figure, um, it, you know, we're we're really spitballing with that. Um, you know, and I, I point that out in the article. Nobody really knows how much. You know, this would cost. It might cost a hundred million. You know, a hundred trillion dollars more than that. It might might cost half of that. But <laughs> I think you know what we know for sure is the price tag for it would be huge. And that price tag is reckoned in terms of not just uh, new taxes or tax increases that would be required, but also by the costs imposed upon uh, private individuals and private firms in the private sector, right? Yep, very much that, and and just what it would take to shift an entire economy, um, you know, off of fossil fuels and onto renewable energy sources. It, it even calls for the retrofitting of every building in America, as I recall, right? So that's uh, it's more 
uh, energy efficient or I'm not sure what all the objectives are there, but th those costs surely wouldn't be borne by taxpayers. That would be foisted upon, uh, to a great extent, if not entirely, the owners of those buildings, including our homes, right? Exactly. Yeah, property owners would see their costs go up tremendously. Um, and and I, I think the group that put out that top figure, I, I think if, if I recall, they didn't even lump the figure together. They just gave a nice breakdown of you know the costs imposed over over a ten year period, um, and they are you know they're enormous. Um, that's one thing not mentioned in the Green New Deal. We don't we don't really hear anything about um, you know how these things would be paid for. Uh, and some people that have actually mentioned that, I think Diane, Fein, Diane Feinstein was one of the um, senators who said, you know, she couldn't support it because she's like, how would we pay for it? And she got uh, she got a little trouble. I think she was scolded by a bunch of school children for that, which I'm sure a lot of listeners probably remember that it was kind of made made headlines. That's right. Well, even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez scolded her for it and said something to the effect that, uh, you know, it was a little bit backward to even question uh, how to pay for something that that is obviously going to be so good. Why should we care what it costs? I mean, that was basically her her position. Exactly. It, it, to me, it, you know, Diane Feinstein just seemed kind of like you know the old school lawmaker that says, well, if we're going to be talking about these these things, we you know, it's our responsibility to consider how we're going to pay for them. And she got chastised for that, which seemed a little strange to me. <laughs> isn't it? It's a sad commentary, isn't it, uh, that we've gotten to the point in this country where members of Congress can propose such extravagant, unbelievable, off-the-charts uh, expenses for new programs and think nothing of making no provision, no pro no proposal to, to pay for even a fraction of it. I mean, uh, that's historically uh, not been the case in America, right? Haven't we always thought that if you want the government to do something, you better come up with an idea about how to pay for it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think there was a great um, article written recently on this that kind of touched on that because, the, the, you know, it, it, right at the beginning, it raised, you know rolls out this sort of grand language saying it is the duty of the federal government to do these things. And, well, the people that are writing them, they are the federal government. If yeah. you're going to lay out, you know, if you're going to say these things must be done, you, you should at least touch on, you know, how are we going to do these things? And they didn't really bother to do any of that in this resolution. Yeah. And they usually come down when you press them very hard. They usually come down to the, the, the tired old notion of, well, we'll just go find some rich people and take their money and that'll that'll pay for it. Exactly. You can always go, you know, to the the goose that's always laid in golden eggs, right? Yeah, I've I've seen estimates. I wish I had them in front of me, but pretty good estimates uh, that suggest you could take every penny that everybody earns or that anybody earns over a quarter million a year, just take it, take it 100 percent of it, and uh, you'd have enough money to run the government for maybe a year. Uh, or something close to that. And then you wouldn't get it the next time because those people would just say, you know, why should I take all the risk, earn all the money, only to have it taken uh, by the government then, that then squanders it? So that would be a one-time deal if you took everything that the rich have. I, I saw that same graphic. You know, I, I think it might have been Anthony Davis. Uh, I, I had something on Twitter. He had a tweet go viral that, that sort of touched on that. That was really good. Oh, oh that's great. <laughs> Well, uh, I've lost my the vision of my producer here. Lisa's not on the thing. Ah, 30 seconds. Thank you. 
Thank you, Brian. Well, maybe since we have just uh, less than half a minute before we break, I'll just remind our listeners who we're talking to, and then we'll, we'll resume after the commercials. Uh, we're talking to John Miltimore today of the Foundation for Economic Education about his recent article at fee.org on the Green New Deal. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back to the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed, and I'm talking today to John Miltimore, the managing editor of Fee.org. John is a prolific writer, and he recently wrote an article that we're talking about today. It appeared at Fee.org entitled, 44 Things You Should Know About the Green New Deal. Now, John, you pointed out in your article that the Green New Deal gets lots of numbers dead wrong. Uh, that it's based on assertions that just aren't true. And one of those assertions is that wages have stagnated for decades, and now the government has to do something about that. What are the facts about wages in this country? Yeah, you know, we, we've all heard it, right? We've heard it for probably two, three decades. I remember, you know, when I was in high school hearing that wages were stagnant. Um, and so, you know, the Green New Deal wasn't the first, you know, you know, they weren't the authors weren't the first to make that claim. But if you dig into the data, you know, there's really it's very clear that wages have, have not been stagnant. Um, if you go back to, you know, how the numbers are going to change a little bit based on on what what data you use. Like, do we do we factor in health care costs? Um, do we factor in other deferred income? What year do we start at? Um, but no matter how you slice it, wages have been increasing for, for the last three decades and by quite a bit. Um, you know, for the lowest quintile in America, wages have increased, you know, 65 percent if you include, you know, health insurance costs in that. And if you don't include them, they've still, clo they've still increased close to 30 percent. Wow. And I know you don't tend uh, to minimize the uh, the troubles that some people uh, endure because of, say, competition from overseas uh, competitors that require them then to find a new line of work. I mean, those kinds of changes are going on all the time. And in the long run, they're actually good for us. I know that uh, you've made that point yourself. Uh, it seems to me that most of the folks who are making a fuss out of the uh, supposed stagnation of wages, which, as you point out, is not exactly the truth, most of those people tend to be those who are trying to cash in on that claim uh, by uh, telling people, hey, vote for me, uh, and uh, I'll solve that problem for you. Right, yeah. You know, in, you, you can find examples on both sides of the political aisle, right? You, you want to feel people's pain. That's sort of what makes our politics run today. You got to, you know, feel the concern of the of the little people, and and try to show that you're on their side. 
Um, and it doesn't mean we can't, you know, be empathetic, but we have to, you know, deal in the reality of the facts. And the facts are very clear. Um, you know, our economy has been growing um, at, a, at a very, very good clip and, and wages have been increasing for everyone. Yeah, this is really a, a lot like uh, the typical situation in unionized uh, factories where the union uh, c cannot come out and say, hey, it's great working here. The employer is fantastic. We have no complaints. You don't need me. See you later. I mean, they, they have a vested interest, as many of these politicians do, at convincing their constituencies that you've got a problem and I'm your savior. And that's what uh, Alexandria Cortez uh, uh, is trying to say. And other people like uh, Bernie Sanders Vote for me, and I'll get you something to fix your problems. Yeah, you know, like, and I, I make a point in the article there. You know, it's it's grievance after grievance after grievance, and you wouldn't really, you know, if you read the Green New Deal, you wouldn't have any idea that we're living in this very prosperous time um, where we're wealthier than ever before, um, and that those that wealth is being experienced by people of every income quintile. Yeah, and they also, aside from wages. They also get life expectancy uh, wrong. It's a, that's another issue that the Green New Deal is factually wrong about. Tell us what the Green New Deal alleges when it comes to life expectancy and uh, what do you think the real story is? Yeah, you know, if you if you read it, it, it we're we're told life expectancy is falling, um, and you know we include a chart in there, a great chart from Our World Data that shows you know for well over a century there's been a steady increase of life expectancy, and that hasn't been unique to the U.S. It's been happening pretty much in most developed nations around the world. Um, the only way you can show that life expectancy is falling is if you take the last two or three years. Um, in which the life expectancy has has declined by a few months, but that has nothing to do with really you know economic factors. It's it's related to the the uptick in suicides that we've witnessed and in the opioid um, you know epidemic in in deaths that we've seen from from drug overdoses. Um, but but yeah, life expectancy has been creeping up steadily for for well over a century, and and that trend is expected to continue. Yeah. You know, uh, going back to economic and material well-being, uh, I think Don Boudreau from George Mason University uh, some years ago came up with a great way to show how much progress we've really made. Uh, he said in an article, I think it was, uh, that we should imagine having $10,000 to spend either from the Sears catalog of 1900 or the comparable catalog of the year 2000. Where would you rather have uh, spend your 10,000? And all you have to do is leaf through catalogs of those two years and you find, gee, $10,000. Even with all the inflation we've had, it would get you a pretty nice plow, you know, and maybe even a small home in 1900, but it wouldn't get you uh, a device that allows you to communicate instantly with people in almost any country of the world and endless other things that we now have today. Most people would by far rather spend their 10,000 by shopping in the catalog of 2000 or 2019 than the catalog of 1900. No, that's a great way to put it. Don Boudreau, he's always good at sharing, you know, great anecdotes like that. And, and, it, and it proves a great point. You know, we, we, we live, we have more things at our fingertips than we could we could have imagined even 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and I think it's just sort of part of human nature that we kind of fail sometimes to appreciate just how good we have it. Yeah. Well, uh, 
to go back to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she also said, not long after she issued the Green New Deal with Senator Markey, that uh, the world is going to end in 12 years. What's up with that? Is that <laughs> can you illuminate that, uh, that claim for us? You know, at first, I, I was really kind of feeling some sympathy, you know, for Ms. Ocasio-Cortez on that front. I get it. You're doing live interviews, and sometimes things come out wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but then if you dig a little deeper, like, it's really clear, like, there is this sort of apocalyptic fear, uh, you know, that's brewing in many people about, about climate change. And I think many people really are. They, they, they think, you know, whether it's 10 years or 12 years, that we're going to be um, – boiling in a lake of fire if, if the federal government doesn't step in and do something here right away. And, you know, with climate change is, is a big, you know, there's a lot to talk about there. But even if, if we accept that a lot of these things are happening, we have, we have to ask ourselves, is giving, is giving, you know, the central planners uh, the, the reins here really going to be in the best interest? And I, I think we know the answer to that is, you know, no. Yeah, absolutely. And yet they have this endless faith that no matter what the future problems may be, uh, the answer is in wise central planners with the with multiple PhDs after their name and with the public uh, good uh, in their hearts and uh, with uh, the power of politics and government uh, behind them. What's the track record for that approach? And haven't we learned something from, from history when it comes to that? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, don't even get me started. I think, you know, the, the 20th century has really proven, you know, um, when it doesn't matter really what the excuse is. But when when uh, central planners get a hold of things, um, things things tend to go wrong. Even the best plans, you know, c come apart. Um, and whether it's saving people from, um, you know, markets or income inequality or from climate change, um, what we've seen is when, you know, bureaucrats and central governments get con control of things, um, you know, a, a lot of bad things tend to happen. I've always thought that uh, these power-hungry central planners, uh, they are practicing what uh, the Nobel laureate F.A. Hayek would say, pretense to knowledge. If they're really so smart, if they know what the future holds, if they know which industries are winners and which are losers, why aren't they trillionaires themselves? Wouldn't they know where to invest, put their own money? Uh, wouldn't they be super rich today? No, it, it's a good point. And and what's you know one of the things I've often thought about is you know there, it wasn't too long ago when there was a lot of prominent intellectuals that seemed to to recognize you know those dangers. You had the the you know Huxley in in Orwell and some of these people that they saw some of the dangers associated with you know, central planning and totalitarianism. But it seems like we've forgotten a lot of that, even though the history isn't that far away from us. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're still fighting some of the same battles we thought we won before uh, uh, or at the time the Soviet Union collapsed. Now we're back to debating, you know, whether a handful of smart people can plan an economy or not. I thought that was settled. Yeah, yeah, you would have <laughs> thought so. Well, we're talking with John Miltimore from Fee.org, and after this break, we'll resume our discussion about the Green New Deal.
Welcome back to the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed, and my guest today has been John Miltimore. We have one more segment with him. He is the managing editor of FEE, F-E-E dot org, and a prolific author. One of the articles he recently wrote is about the Green New Deal, and we've been talking about that subject uh, for the previous two segments. Uh, John, what does the Green New Deal that came out earlier this year uh, proposed to do with fossil fuels that we're so dependent upon these days and have been for a long time, natural gas, uh, oil, uh, and so forth. What does it plan to do with fossil fuels, and is any of that either realistic or desirable? Well, um, the, the stated goal is to phase out all fossil fuels, I believe, by the year 2030. Um, so everybody and, in the oil business loses their job, right? And anybody uses it has to switch to something else. Natural gas, oil, coal, you name it. Um, and, you know, I think that's really what even people that are very much part of the environmental movement and, and are sympathetic with it and, and are fighting for it, um, I think that's why they said this isn't a serious proposal. They said that's not that's not possible. Um, and I think I, I think any serious person would, would agree with that, um, that it's not possible or desirable. We, we have we can't you know, produce enough power for seven or eight billion people um, on on renewable energy. And, and it's just not going to happen. Um, and and it's, it's funny because even, the you know, a lot of renewable energy there doesn't seem to be the, of the appropriate kind. They, you know, they mentioned nuclear power is pretty much off limits. Um, I read a recent article that said uh, hydroelectric power um, in California. They don't, they, they don't want to count that as renewable energy. Um, you know, so that would leave us just wind and solar, I guess. And the, the fact of the matter is you, can't, you just can't produce, produce enough power with that. Yeah, it's very unpredictable, isn't it? Depends on if, if the wind blows and if the sun shines. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, on a cloudy day, you'd find yourself in, in a world of hurt. <laughs> yeah, and you have to hope you're not on the uh, emergency room table uh, <laughs> awaiting a, an important operation. Huh? Yeah, I guess no, and it, it's just one of those things we should be very thankful for, you know, the, the fossil fuels that we have been able to uncover. I mean, you can go back, you can, we were told for decade after decade after decade, we were, you know, at peak oil, we were running out of fossil fuels and, and the world keeps, um, you know, offering, you know, we're, we're finding more and more and, and we should be thankful we are. Now, the advocates of the Green New Deal, though, uh, com complain that uh, when we burn fossil fuels, uh, we mm -hmm. release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which then contributes to, in a man-made way, uh, the warming of the earth and all of its implications from unpredictable weather to droughts, to you name it. Uh, do you have a personal view of the science of that? How much of global warming really is man-made and, and fossil fuel-based? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. It's one. It's one I, I I don't talk about too much because it is like how many people are really capable of of analyzing some of that that raw data. Um, but my own view is that the the planet is getting modestly warmer, and I do think you know humans. We have seven and a half billion humans on the planet. Are we playing a role in that? Sure. Um, but you know, I just I'm skeptical of some of the the, the dire claims um, about that. And, and in fact, there's there's a lot of evidence, you know, from people who have PhDs and in, in awards who are a lot smarter than I am that, that says CO2 is, is 
is very much very helpful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 far from being a problem, it's going to make our planet um, more habitable. Yeah. One of the skeptics of uh, some of the global warming alarmism is uh, a, a very notable and respected figure, a man named Bjorn Lomborg. And yeah. I know he, he claims that uh, you know, the alarmists underestimate the extent to which people can use in a free society uh, technology to solve or a, a problem or adapt to it. And that they're also underestimating uh, just uh, uh, how bad global warming is, that it, that it has some upside to it as well, that they don't factor into their thinking. Do you have any, uh, uh, any sense of either of those issues? You know, I am a big fan of Lomberg, um, and he, you know, he came out with a great tweet thread here the other day. It was a dozen tweets, um, breaking down a lot of these ideas, and it was packed with great data. And you know, like one of the things that stood out for me is he showed, you know, throughout the 20th century, climate-related deaths have been steadily falling. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you compare that to non-climate-related deaths, like they're not doing that; they've been relatively flat. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I'm not saying that there's no downside to you know to climate change or there's we shouldn't be aware of it and um, be prepared for it. Um, but I, I think I think a lot of the climate alar- alarmism is just simply not supported by any concrete data, any em- empirical evidence. Now you say in your recent article uh, that we're discussing 44. Let me get the exact name of that again. 44 things you need to know about the Green New Deal that uh, the Green New Deal is a little more than a gigantic PR stunt. Uh, I wonder if you could explain that further. Yeah, it was one of those things that, you know, I don't think I've mentioned very much is that the, the, the resolution isn't even actual legislation. It's a non-binding resolution that says even if everybody did vote for this and even if the president signed it, it wouldn't have any the power of law behind it. It actually wouldn't do anything. And so it occurred to me, like, why are we talking about this then? Um, and I guess it is sort of to, to raise awareness, I, I think they would say. And maybe, you know, for the people that are advocating it, it's a way to raise their profile. I, I'm sure media, you know, for, for them it was great. It's one of those sort of hot-button topics that people have been talking about. We're, you know, we're, we're talking on the radio now. Um, and, you know, and so I, I see, you know, maybe that was behind it but you know we're spending an awful lot of time you know airtime and you know there's there's two billion articles i think you know or if, if you google you'll see two billion searches come up in, in in under a second and uh and we're we're spending all that time talking about something that doesn't even have the force of law behind it um and i wonder like okay wh- why are we doing that <laughs> well a few weeks back when the senate majority leader uh from uh kentucky whose name escapes me, uh, shoot. McConnell. Uh, McConnell, yeah, uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, put it up for a vote, just, you know, just uh, <laughs> vote yes or no based on whether you think this is the right direction to go. I don't think it got any votes, right? Even the Democrats voted simply present uh, yeah. in most cases. They didn't, uh, nobody voted for it. Yeah, and that, you know, to me, that that kind of said something. Nobody kind of wanted to be attached to that, and there's probably some political reasons for that. Um, you know, there's a lot of ideas in there that are pretty bad. Um, there's a lot of ideas in there that are kind of scary, um, and I think it is telling that you you had you know lawmakers that didn't want to stand beside it. 
But a lot of those same lawmakers, you know, have been out there uh, using it to their advantage whenever they can. Uh, they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. They don't vote for it when it comes up, but they're out there, depending on who the audience is, uh, trying to sell certain aspects of it uh, as if they're advocates for it. I mean, it, it seems as though they are just using it as a means to another end, which is more political power for themselves and, and reelection. Yeah, and, and let's not forget too the you know the environmental lobby is probably one of the biggest lobbies you know for progressives and they um, if, you, if you're trying to raise money um, that's kind of an important one to to make sure that you uh, that you support or you know at least have tacitly supported. We have about a minute and a half uh, left. Um, John, I wonder if you could offer a, an assessment of where you think this thing is going. Does it have any legs? Are we going to still be talking about it in two, four, six years? Is any of it ever going to pass? I, I really don't believe it will. I think, you know, for you know, Miss Ocasio-Cortez, it made sense. She she had this huge story um, and she kind of had to come out and, and do something that looked big. Um, and it kind of made her, you know, politically, it made sense for her to try to do something like this. Um, I don't think the climate issue is going to go away, though. I think that's going to be there's some lasting power there. And it doesn't matter if the climate goes up or down. Um, I think that issue is going to be sticking around. And a lot of the, these ideas do have staying power, but but not the Green New Deal. Well, hopefully, uh, if the issue sticks around, we can get more creative than simply uh, uh, setting up vast new federal bureaucracies and spending $93 trillion to retrofit people's homes and all the other nonsense that's in it. Uh, maybe it'll, it will at least spur some serious discussion about actual viable, affordable and effective alternatives. We can hope for that. Yeah, we, yeah. we certainly can. And I, I saw, I think it was Wikipedia that called it a, a giant stimulus package. And I, you'd think we'd, we'd learn after the last stimulus package that, that this doesn't, this isn't going to stimulate anything. It might make some people rich, um, but, but as far as the economic stimulation, it, it, it'll be empty. No, it stimulates government and politicians yeah. and re-election of some of them. But uh, beyond that, uh, the rest of us have to pick up the tab somehow for it. Thank you, John Miltimore, for being my guest today on the Read Hour. John is from FEE, F-E-E dot org. Check out his articles there. Thanks again, Brian uh, Hyde, for uh, uh, producing this show today and, and John Miltimore for being my guest. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.